be patient in an emergency is a terrible trial. Welcome to the Building Hope podcast. We're featuring environmentally visionary architectural projects to explore how good design can build hope in a world facing a climate emergency. I'm Julie Gabrielli, a professor of architecture at the University of Maryland. And I'm Vincenzo Perla, a grad student here at the University of Maryland. In this episode, we introduce the themes of our podcast and preview the conversations to come. So this whole experience of putting this podcast together reminds me of how, um, I don't know about you, but like, how often have you met someone at a party and you get in a conversation, they ask you what you do and you say, I'm an architect and they say, oh, I've always wanted to be an architect. But I suck at math. (laughs) Or yeah, right. (laughs) Or like, oh, I designed my own house using this, uh, you know, like what's, what are the softwares like? house king or i don't know there's like apps on your phone yeah yeah exactly (laughs) so it turns out uh just like architecture isn't as easy as it looks podcasting is also not as easy as it looks no not at all (laughs) it's been a journey um and we keep having to come back to okay you know the name of this podcast is building hope um so let's try to stay positive in the face of this challenge and that challenge Um, and it kind of ties in with something I've been wondering about for years with all that's going on in the environment and has been going on, whether hope is a luxury or is it a necessity for the work ahead? Given all that's going on in the world, it can sometimes feel irresponsible to be hopeful. Well, both Jane Goodall and Howard Zinn have great rebuttals to the hope naysayers. Here's Jane Goodall. Hope is often misunderstood. People tend to think it's simply passive wishful thinking. I hope something will happen, but I'm not going to do anything about it. This is indeed the opposite of real hope, which requires action and engagement. And that's why we're so excited to share these student projects with you, because they're very engaged and hopeful. Here's Howard Zinn. To be hopeful in bad times is not just foolishly romantic. It is based on the fact that human history is a history, not only of cruelty, but also of compassion, sacrifice, courage, and kindness. What we choose to emphasize in this complex history will determine our lives. And again, these students choose to emphasize a powerful, hopeful vision of the future And this is coming out of some pretty dark history that we'll see as we dig into these conversations. So I I find myself thinking about hope, especially at thesis time um, in December and in May when students like yourself present their projects to invited guests, faculty, and lots of other students who sit in to watch. It's a big day. It's a big day. The one you're dreading and looking forward to. Yeah. Because you'll have a life again, (laughs) maybe. I noticed a few years ago, I started realizing, like, the students that had really environmentally visionary projects, um, you know, they would talk through their analysis of of the problem, the situation. Then they would talk about their proposal and show these beautiful drawings they had done. And 
I would just sit there and realize, I feel really good right now. I feel hopeful about the future. And I started realizing that it made me want to show more people these projects and get them out in the world. And that maybe by hearing the students' stories, why they did these projects, what they, what ideas they were working with, and see their work, they might feel hopeful too. Yeah, I mean, as someone going through the process right now, it does seem like a shame to spend so much time and effort doing all this research for one big day. Yeah, it's like it's a year. Yeah. It's a year of work. <laughs> Over a year. And an hour of time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That is, it sounds crazy when you say it like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, and it's like, we go through this process ourselves of doing all this research, finding out all these, you know, facts and things about different places. Um, and it's kind of this process of, okay, finding out this information, getting kind of bogged down about it. And then our role is how can we kind of flip the situation on its head mm -hmm. um, and create instead a place that kind of inspires hope. Because mm -hmm. this is your future, like you're, you're designing the future basically. I mean, the thesis project, one of the best things about it is that it becomes this kind of stake in the ground for your career. Um, you know, I, I love watching these presentations because it, to see just how confident the students are about the work and there's a lot of give and take and conversation at these presentations and um, uh, you really get the sense that they have sort of left graduate school kind of knowing what sort of architect they want to be and what kinds of projects they want to work on. And so what part of my interest with this podcast was to check in with these seven folks who did these incredibly visionary projects to see, hey, how's it going now that you're in the work world? Um, you know, you've got, you have these values, you have this knowledge, you've studied all these amazing precedents and real, real world projects that are doing some of these things. And you put it all together and, you know, how, how's it going? <laughs> and so there have been some amazing and just really rich conversations with these people about that, that we're going to share in the podcast. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So tell us, what is your project about? That is a good question. I, um, I'm designing for what we've been calling the future climate. Um, but in actuality, it's, you know, it's the current climate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's happening now. <laughs> yes. Yes. That seems a wise thing to be designing for. Yeah. So as a, you know, during the journey of this project, as I've been doing some of this research, you know, it's scary research. It's scary to see how warm it's going to get, how the land is going to change because the sea is going to be reshaping it in certain ways. So what I want to focus on really in this project and hopefully for my career is what do buildings look like in this, in this new world? That there's something you can do about it. That there's something I can do about it and that it's, it's definitely not what we've been doing. Yes, right. And, and I think that's um, a great perspective because as designers, we are used to looking at complex systemic problems and requirements, thinking about them in ways that are methodical without choking the life out of it. 
you know, we want to bring a vision to it. Mm-hmm. And in your case, um, in a lot of a lot of people in your generation's case, it's a very future oriented vision. Mm-hmm. It's not just the kind of future orientation that we had in grad school. It's like um, you know, thinking about our career and our future in that respect. You're thinking about like the future of life on this earth. Sheesh. That's a lot to ask. <laughs> That's a big weight on our shoulders. Yeah. But it, I mean, all joking aside, like I do think that's something with a lot of people resonate with in my position right now. Yeah. And I think that if you were to, I think that's what's really great about architecture is that we're kind of uniquely positioned to take this data and the scientific research that most people don't really understand, interpret it, and build something out of it um, that, you know, will make a change and that people interact with on the day-to-day. And, you know, at the end of the day, I kind of, I just want a voice in deciding how we do this, how we tackle these questions of climate resilience and social justice. You know, what, what can we do about it? And I think as architects and designers, there's actually quite a lot that we can do about it. Yeah, yeah. And um, I would say uh, that from my perspective as a professor for the last couple of decades, um, is that architecture students are absolutely brilliant at envisioning a more beautiful future. And and that's what we do here in architecture school. um, And it's what architects try to do to the extent that they can balance those sort of leading with their values while also meeting budgets and schedules and the client's values and and desires and needs and requirements and regulatory issues. So, of course, it's what makes the profession so interesting and so challenging. But the great thing about being in architecture school is that you get to do whatever you want. You get to set aside most of those quote-unquote practical concerns in favor of giving your all to something that's probably the ultimate practical concern, which is how, how do we want to live? Mm-hmm. What I've actually found is that there are ways that we can integrate these things into our buildings mm-hmm. now that in the current system, in the current business, that wouldn't be this crazy response. You know, one of the great things about architecture school is that it gives you kind of this this crystal clear vision, right? That you can see things for what they are and how they should be without any outside pressures or with less outside pressures. Yeah, less, less, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you still got to pay your tuition and, and your rent. Right, and, and, and you know, they, the projects are still, like we said, practical and realistic. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, that's what makes them such powerful examples of hope. So we're looking at seven different projects that kind of, you know, challenge the status quo that we've just been talking about. And we're going to be speaking with their creators, looking into their projects and their research, and hopefully by doing that, maybe catching a little bit of their optimism. Um, And so we have these seven projects. They're quite varied. Uh, In every case, they represent practical resistance to the status quo, and they are uh, tackling a variety of topics, including climate resilience, low carbon materials, food justice, housing equity, what we call biophilic design, which we'll get into in a later episode, and working directly with community members 
in a collaborative fashion rather than a top-down, here's what you're going to get kind of way that has been more typical of our profession. So let's just get into it. We're going to give an overview of the seven projects we'll be featuring in this podcast, starting with Ava Omibar's project. Uh, I've had a really long journey understanding why I care about the environment. Um, Is it for me? Is it for them? Is it for them, the other species? Is it for (laughs) them, the plants? You know, what, what, who, who am I doing this for? Uh, And, and I think for me, it's, it's all of the above, but I think I have to also be honest with myself and understand that it is predominantly going to be a human driven pursuit in a lot of ways. Um, Because I, I think there are a lot of events that happen on earth that affect the trajectory of the environment. And one of them right now is how humans are living on the earth and others may have been non life form (laughs) events that have caused, uh, you know, dramatic change. Um, But I myself am a human and I observe the world as a part of that species. And so, uh, you know, we have the benefit of being able to feel sympathy for things that are not our species. um, And that's very unique. But at the end of the day, you know, we are interacting predominantly with one another and have a a much easier time affecting each other positively or negatively than we do other things. Just, Just the way that we live in the current time. I just love that clip so much. Um, And I think the reason why is because she's asking such a seemingly easy, plain question. (laughs) That is actually really hard to answer. Yeah. Like, ask yourself, why do you care about the environment? Sometimes those are the types of questions that are difficult to respond to. And she's so honest about it, too, because she was in my ecological design thinking class, and we talked about it a ton. Not the not that explicit question, but the fact that it's not just the human show here on Earth. You know, we're here with all these other living beings. So she's really honest. She's like, "Why, why do I care? Is it ju- is it for all these other living beings? Or is it really just for me and my fellow humans?" And I think that's something that's worth coming to terms with because a lot of sort of human centric thinking is what got us to where we are right now. Mm-hmm. Well, it's human-centric, but her project clearly takes inspiration from the way that non-humans operate. So her project is essentially an adaptable building that's moving slowly with the changing climate. It kind of reminds me of different animals that maybe are moving their habitats given the changing climates and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, right. And so, yeah, she picked a site that's in southwest D.C. in an area that's that's seen a little bit of climate change effects maybe with urban flooding but uh is going to be vulnerable to far more extreme events in the future and so she's experimenting with how do you accommodate that in kind of a radical way so that the building could be picked up and moved or it could be raised up above a a more flooded environment she's kind of looking head-on at questions that we're all going to be facing sooner than later probably and speaking of climate resilience um, and bold ideas, 
Juhi Goel designed a mixed-use tower uh, of mass timber, um, and mixed-use being uh, retail, office, apartments, right in downtown Boston on the waterfront next to the aquarium. She wanted to give everyone who interacts with her building and the site that it's on a kind of window into a more climate resilient future um, despite rising sea levels. So she chose this waterfront site intentionally. And so, you know, I started thinking more and more about this topic and that sort of morphed into this idea of what if the way to educate people about their their footprint was actually just through a very mixed use, very sort of diverse program that could talk to a lot of different groups um, and interact with them. And just by virtue of using that building and that site, these people could become informed about, you know, different systems and, and what you know, what they were stepping on and what they were using and sort of by that methodology start to engage in climate action. Juhi mentions in that clip, she mentions the idea of a footprint. And I think what she means there is that each of us, by virtue of living here on the earth, um, we have an impact. We use energy, we eat food, we drive cars, we live in buildings and we build buildings. And so all of that kind of adds up to what she calls our footprint. One of the things I admire so much about her project is that she's she's basically finding a way to make things visible that are normally hidden to us, um, both in terms of the resources we're using, but also presenting alternative ways of living more gently. Um, and this idea of revealing hidden things is something that um, another one of our projects does very well. Yeah, and so for Melanie Quintanilla's project, she's working with the residents of Baltimore's Harlem Park, whose people have had this history of top-down development and redlining and erasure that is not as, not as visible to the masses as it should be, as it is to the people who have lived there. I tried to think of the site, it, it almost felt like a brownfield to me, not because of hazardous material, but because of I guess the relationship between the people and the developers and the people that made the building decisions. There was so much anger like uh-huh. built in in the people against the uh, the I guess the city government that made these decisions. Yeah. <laughs> that they were then yeah. skeptical of any further mm-hmm. development. Like people would come up to us like, hey, are you gonna build something else here? Are you gonna tear down my house? Like oh. they were really worried. <laughs> And yet Melanie designed a beautiful, welcoming community school that celebrates this shared history and culture. One of the things I love the most about Melanie's project is how intentionally she uh, created places for people to connect with each other. And this idea of reconnecting people with each other and with nature also informed another of our projects. And this one was designed by Jemima Asamoah. And her project was a waterfront park and community center along the Potomac River. And it's meant to serve Washington, D.C.'s Anacostia neighborhood. So it's in southeast part of the city. And she even included this really cool green bridge across this massive highway that was cutting the neighborhood off from the riverfront. Uh, and this bridge has a park on top of it um, and also some artwork and sculptures. 
And all of this is rendered in a really beautiful, compelling detail, and we can't wait to share it with you. So for me, mine was to redesign the Anacostia Recreation Center. So it didn't start with me wanting to do that immediately. So my topic mainly looked at how regenerative architecture can help improve the quality of life of like blighted urban areas. So um, initially, I know I was always interested in something that has to do with sustainability, but then I was like, what is the next step that I can go? And then I chanced upon regenerative architecture and I found it really interesting. And then I was like, okay, so the principles of this topic is to improve upon the quality of life. Anacostia's rich history was the source of inspiration for another project. One of the takeaways from the thesis was kind of how intentional um, things like infrastructure or policy are weaponized against certain marginalized communities right. and how it's it's very like embedded in the creation of those communities and it's cast a shadow over how those communities operate nowadays. Very. That's Jasmine Anoa. Her project reimagines the Anacostia's historic berry farm as this cutting edge permaculture landscape with homes, local businesses, a rec center, a heritage trail, a history center, and gathering spaces for the community. One of the strongest aspects of her project was that she tapped into this deep history of self-sufficiency and community building. Another project with big ambitions is Leia Clark's. And she proposed re-inhabiting a West Baltimore neighborhood quickly by housing its most vulnerable people, the unhoused. As Leah herself said, housing is a human right. A place to call home is not only connected with safety and self-worth, but with our very humanity. I think the whole ethos of my project was just like, if you just provide housing for people like somewhere where they can safely call home, then I believe like the rest can follow where you know people have a sense of security and then they can you know, from that sense of security, they can get better, get to a more stable place and not have to live in an unstable environment. So what a lot of these projects are talking about is community building and self-determination. And Christian Romero's project really fits this bill in kind of a different way, you know. He designed his thesis during the pandemic shutdown. And so to complete his vision of this innovative, affordable housing project in Whiskeel, El Salvador, where his grandmother lived, he had to reimagine how he was going to connect with this community. And find creative ways to engage with them and to listen to them. Tagging onto the question of environmental justice, right? Like giving people a say in their home and their living conditions and not just it being dictated by your, your economic class um, or like what you do for a living. So. so there's this theme here that's become evident and that's that everyone deserves good design. And in school, we have this luxury of paying attention to the needs of the communities. And then we graduate and we get a job in a firm where we have to contend with budgets and schedules and clients. Right, like, it's like, think outside the box and now get back in the box, which is something that I contended with after graduating from architecture school myself. And I was thinking about that in putting this podcast together that I was, you know, 
full of big ideas, but I was often forced into small roles because I had no experience and there was a lot of work to do. I had a lot to learn. And being patient was a real struggle. Yeah, and patience is still a struggle, but things are really different now and the stakes are way higher. And this is kind of where we start to get back to this idea that some might consider patience and hope to be a little misguided or irresponsible. It's like we need this sense of urgency for all of the work ahead if we're ever going to avert this climate disaster. Which is why our podcast inaugural season is called Patience in an Emergency. We were inspired by something the writer, farmer, and wise elder Wendell Berry said in an interview with Bill Moyers a while back. This can't be hurried. This is the dreadful situation that young people are in, and I, I think of them, and I say, well, the situation you're in now is a situation that's going to call for a lot of patience. And to be patient in an emergency is a terrible trial. I think it's important to be patient just because there's so much to learn before you might have actual solutions and, and be able to actively contribute. But at the same time, I think waiting till you know everything can be a bit of a trap. Yeah, instead of being in immediately reactive, like try to gauge how things are playing out and address them as you go. I think it's tough. Like I, I like hearing that phrase, I just felt like it is really hard to be patient with everything that's happening. There there definitely needs to be more of a sense of urgency because I feel like that kind of leads to impatience because there's just not enough being done. But at the same time, like what Jasmine was saying, like good solutions take time. So you have to be patient in terms of really thinking about solutions to these problems. And so we return to hope. What have you seen over a long life that prevents you from being fatally pessimistic? Well, hope. And, and in my work, in my, especially in the essays, I've always been trying to construct or lay out, map out the grounds of a legitimate, authentic hope. And if you can find one good example, then you've got the ground for hope. Lucky for us, these young architects and their projects provide many grounds for such hope. And we can't wait to share their stories of practical resistance with you. On our next episode, we'll hear from Ava and Juhi on Building Hope with Resilient Adaptable Architecture. Building Hope is... Julie Gabrielli, director. Vincenza Perla, research assistant. Maisha Islam, graphic designer. Rona Cobell, editor. Raymar Toizone, music. Hannah Zozobrado, assistant producer and social media head. Gabriella Feinberg, technical director and producer. You can see images of these wonderful projects on our YouTube channel at Building Hope Pod. Visit our website, Building Hope podcast.com for show notes, transcripts, guest bios, curriculum materials, etc., etc., etc. You'll just have to go there to find out what.
We're also on Instagram at Building Hope Pod and on Substack at Building Hope. Thanks for listening and sharing. This project is supported by a Faculty Student Research Award from the Graduate School at University of Maryland, as well as grants from the University's Sustainability Fund and the School of Architecture Planning and Preservation.